This is a Federal News Network podcast. Doing more with less, it's always been easier said than done. For the IRS, it's driven the move to robotic process automation. Shanna Webbers is the Assistant Deputy Commissioner for Operations Support at the IRS. Teresa Hunter is the Chief Financial Officer. They discuss how RPA is helping the tax agency become more efficient and move employees out of the mundane and into the more valuable work. First to hear Hunter. We have started out just kind of in the infancy with our robotic process information and started with, a, you know, a small proof of concepts where we're doing some, you know, test cases. So we have, do have, you know, success in some areas, but we are looking into other bigger wins. So we have, you know, several RPAs that are in the queue right now with IT for approval. So we're hoping that, you know, as we progress and grow in this area, not with just NCFO, but also IRS as a whole, that, you know, we will start getting some more momentum behind some of the uh, the wins that we would have. Because to Shanna's point, you know, we really want to start transitioning the, the work of our staff from the transactional base to give them more time for the analytical side so that we can be more efficient and, and more thorough in our decision making and things like that um, within the organization. And it's those short wins that really start to really get the momentum going. So maybe let's talk about some of those initial RPAs. You, you, uh, I think Teresa mentioned there's several in the queue, but before we get down that path, what's already being used and, and what were some of those early wins that really showed the way? This is Shanna for the procurement side. We focused on a couple of RPAs that are pretty, that we felt were pretty simple, you know, start small so we can test it and see how it works. And one of those examples is a contractor responsibility bot. And anytime we award to a new vendor, we as procurement professionals must vet and do due diligence to ensure that the vendors aren't suspended or debarred, they don't have any fellow uh, felony convictions, they're not tax delinquent, or otherwise adverse information. And we rely on a lot of public data to actually do that. And so having it would take us maybe a couple of hours to go out and search these various websites, document the information, prepare a report for the contract file. The bot was able to go out to these exact same public facing websites, pull that information in and give us a report in a matter of seconds. And so that was a really early win for us. It also helped improve our contract file documentation because it was an easy win for people to take that report that was already generated and just attach it to the contract file. So there were additional benefits beyond just the amount of time that was saved in those instances. I do want to point out if the bot flagged a concern that then the contracting officer would take extra steps to go out and research that further and do some validation. So we weren't taking the information blindly, but it was an easy way for us to gather that type of information. So that was one of our earliest successes using robotic process automation. And I know, Teresa, you have several others that your team is trying to um, leverage. You want to talk about any of those? We started this process on our innovation effort a couple years ago, where we, we developed a innovation team that encompassed, you know, like I said, multiple areas of figuring out how could we gain efficiencies across CFO. And we really started with looking at our as-is state because we didn't want to throw automation out there just to automate, to automate, to say that, you know, because it may not necessarily be the right path to take. So we started out with, you know, documenting our as-is and then moving into where are the best opportunities for automation. Um, And so, like I said, we did some small wins that, you know, really were just, you know, kind of like I said, the proof of concept so that we would, 
you know, moving in, you know, baby steps toward getting the confidence, encouraging our, our, um, our staff to have a new way of looking at how we could possibly do things. So one of the areas that, that we have moved across the board is basically just pulling a report and then saving it to a file. And that sounds extremely simple, but, you know, bots aren't super fancy. <laughs> They're like repetitive, like mundane tasks that, you know, somebody had to do that. Right. Um, so it, it does save time and effort on our, our staff's part, you know, that obviously isn't one that's a significant amount of time, but it is us moving in the right direction. But we have other ones that are in the queue right now. So in the next six to 12 months, we're, we're focusing on um, RPA implementation that's working around data reconciliation and management for our manual adjustments for refunds and deposits that could save up to 35,000 hours per year. So there's a significant opportunity, I think, in IRS. We are a very paper-based um, organization. Um, and it's just a matter of like our IT organization having the capacity and the funding to keep up with the demand that, you know, is going to be coming their way. You know, CIO has a, a big job of making sure that we are secure and safe in, in what we do when we are business units are very anxious to get out there and, and get going. So it's a, it's a balance, you know, between, you know, having a good relationship with your CIO office and, and understanding, you know, their perspective as well as the needs of the businesses. So. Jason, Teresa and I just talked about bots that we're using internally to help us with efficiencies and help our staff save some time. But I do want to talk about just very quickly a bot that we created in procurement that also has an impact to the, the citizens and others that look at how do government agencies spend their money, which I think is also important that it's not just internal, but also how do we create benefit to our external partners as well. And when the Data Act came out, looking at USA spend data, which is used to make a lot of decisions of how the federal government is spending our money. We at the Treasury, our accuracy of that data was was not rated very well. The IRS, because we are the largest bureau in Treasury, if we were able to improve that accuracy, Treasury as a whole, our accuracy would, would approve. And, and so we recognize that. Concurrently, as we were implementing, looking to implement bots, we were also looking to try a new agile procurement approach called Pilot IRS, which is just an incremental way to purchase emerging technologies. And we could not find a customer who was willing to be the guinea pig to let us try this new acquisition strategy. So we said, okay, we're going to try it on ourselves and we're going to try it for a for data act and try to improve our data accuracy. And so it was hugely successful. We proved that the procurement methodology and approach using Pilot IRS was successful. And more importantly, we dramatically increased our accuracy and reliability of the data in USA Spend. We went from a very low score when we were audited to an A. We were one of the top agencies on the accuracy of the data that is out in the public space that's available. To zoom out a little bit, what is the, I think, the driving factor in which the IRS measures success here in terms of bots? Measuring that success is really important. And what are those measures? Currently in procurement from our bots, we have been looking at time saved or accuracy. We have not viewed this as an FTE reduction because just because we're automating specific parts of a process or specific tasks does not necessarily mean that we don't need people to do other work. It means that we're being freed up from doing repetitive work to do more complex 
work. And so I think that that determining what that return on investment, how that looks and how you measure that is so critically important. So that you're not leading to incorrect assumptions or leading decision makers down a path that's not accurate. So I believe right now, at least for the early on box that we've been doing in procurement, they've been more focused on time saved or accuracy of data. From the CFO perspective, it's really a two-pronged approach. Uh, as we're, we're working on the automation, the innovation, the efficiency effort um, within CFO, we're also looking at the skill sets of our staff. How can we upskill, reskill? What are the core areas that we want to focus on of making sure our, our staff are being trained to develop and, and grow in their role as we move forward with some of these shifts and changes? Um, so, you know, not only looking at our save, the new tasks completed and the, and the work capacity shifts, you know, similar to, you know, CF, procurement and CFO, you know, we aren't looking to reduce necessarily our FTEs, but we're looking at being able to be more analytical in our decision-making and how we are approaching the work that we have to do so that we could be, you know, more successful in, in how we, we're making decisions, how we're coming to conclusions. Shanna Webers is the Assistant Deputy Commissioner for Operations Support at the IRS, Teresa Hunter, the CFO. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman and Jason Miller. Check out their story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are 
sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.